Welcome to Real Parents, Real Results. I'm Tara Murphy. In this podcast series, we will be having real discussions about advocating for children with special needs and learning disabilities. With me today is Aaron Wright, father of a daughter with autism and author of the book, 13 Doors. Aaron, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. How old was your child when she was diagnosed with autism? I don't necessarily know if there's a clean answer to that. <laughs> so we knew early on uh, that she had, that there was developmental differences. She is our youngest, that uh, we have uh, two children. So we knew there was differences between uh, her developmental patterns and my son, who's uh, you know, about a year and a half older. Um, and so early on, uh, we kind of had a fortuitous uh, meeting of, with a county social worker and were able to kind of get enrolled in early intervention services at a very young age. Uh, and that for us overlapped with um, not only some developmental differences that were happening, but some anatomical differences that prompted our pediatrician to send us for brain imaging uh, and whatnot. So we, um, you know, kind of setting that aside, we were about t- age 10 or 11 months, we were in uh, with her with early intervention services and getting uh, occupational therapy, speech therapy, uh, incident therapy, or incident specialist uh, in our home at about 11, age 11 months. There were, there's kind of a rotating cast of diagnoses that were, were floated about for many years. Uh, just for uh, the sake of paperwork, she was diagnosed or given a diagnosis of sensory processing disorder. But it really wasn't until age eight that any sort of formal diagnosis was given by anyone knowledgeable about the subject. And that's clearly, that's you know several years into her uh, elementary school uh, career. Yeah, five years in, yeah. right? H- how did you advocate for her then? Early on, it was uh, by happenstance. You know, I don't know that I was very aware parent, uh, fairly naive, but you know, like I said, we have two children and my youngest, uh, you know, we're fairly aware of, of developmental milestones, uh, but that was never something that, you know, we necessarily tracked. It's like, okay, well, we're, we're crawling now. We're, okay, we're walking now. Okay, we're saying our first words now. Okay, we're eating solid foods now. And then as that kind of did not transpire uh, with our daughter in the same way, you know, some of the early things that I think typical parents do that they don't consider necessarily advocacy kind of kicked in, right? You, you go to your pediatrician and you start asking uh, people in similar situations in your community. And so that was kind of our early path. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, categorize that as kind of that hard firm advocacy role. A lot of that did not kick in uh, until those services that we were receiving in those early intervention years were threatened by that transition from early intervention, regional-based or county-based services as we transitioned into school district-based services. And so that advocacy really became mostly the first part of it was simply asking questions and not taking at face value uh, what was being thrown back at us. So, you know, thankfully we had these at least three solid years of experience and having gone through uh, a process that for us was working, having a fair amount of information that we knew to be true uh, about our daughter. But then when confronted with a system that was telling us quite the opposite, 
instead of believing that, you know, our, our first inclination was to start asking questions. Well, why is that so much different than what we were told you know, just last month at the regional center? Or, you know, why does your uh, testing say this? Or how come you didn't follow this protocol properly? Or how come you're not following this procedure? So it really became about asking questions. And then, of course, that kind of morphs as you go through the process of trying to get your child on an IEP. Um, even once you've made it to an IEP, are those services appropriate uh, for the needs of your child? So it really became kind of this, you know, I can't pinpoint one exact thing, but I would have to say it's kind of this evolutionary process of really asking questions. Oh, yeah, that's definitely what I did. And yeah, you're right. Advocating without, without knowing it is when you start asking the questions. Right. So why did you write the book? A lot of reasons. The first, I think, kind of reflexive reason is that, oh, it was cathartic. It was helpful for me to put it down on the page, our story. Uh, I think a lot of parents in our situation have felt, you know, gaslit, uh, you know, lied to, um, not necessarily trusting the things that you tell people kind of get turned and twisted and thrown back at you. So the page was a place that wouldn't lie. Um, it wouldn't, you know, it never... It, it wouldn't lie to me. It always told me the truth because that was what I was putting down on the page. But as I was writing, there was a part of the process that, yes, was just for me. But as I kind of had this idea that this can be a larger issue, um, it can be helpful for other people. Uh, I really wanted it to be a, a process of raising awareness. So I've kind of described this a couple of different ways. You know, clearly I'm not a woman, but you don't have to be a woman or or be the victim of misogyny or sexual assault to be supportive of the Me Too movement. You don't have to be African-American to be supportive of Black Lives Matter. But in order to get there, you have to have some basic um, understanding and awareness of what the issues that those groups are facing. So during all of this process, my wife and I really felt alone. And I think that's a very common feeling for families like ours is that you feel like this is, you know, kind of this crazy making process. Nobody else must be dealing with things like this. But that, in fact, is not the truth. And that's actually by design that you're made to feel isolated that way. And, you know, point of fact, so are your children made to feel isolated. So what I really wanted to do was bring awareness. Uh, and help people feel like they weren't alone. So that was kind of the first layer. And the second layer of that is really to recruit, uh, to, to tell a story in a way that would help build empathy, but help recruit allies so that it isn't just a group of parents um, who have gone through a very similar path, but maybe parents who have not, but are willing, willing to stand shoulder to shoulder with you and help change the system. So the way the current process works, as I'm sure you're aware, and many of your listeners are probably aware, is it's a very deficit-based system. It's a fail-first process. And that can be incredibly harmful to your child. It can be incredibly harmful to you. And it's not like it's a simple, I'm going to sign my child up for special education process. It's not like signing them up for T-ball or Little League. It's an ongoing kind of constant uh, assault really on the psyche of the parent because you are put in this position where you are constantly having, to your first question, constantly having to advocate for your child 
And the way that you have to advocate for your child is by showing people that don't necessarily have your child's best interests in mind, having to constantly focus on the negative or detrimental aspects of your child or what they cannot do. And that can be, you know, soul ripping for a parent, but you have to constantly do that from age three through at least 18, right? If you're engaging that public education system. And that really can be, you know, emotionally difficult for parents. And then at the same time, you still have to manage to find a way to hold your child's humanity, right? Remember that they are a person, embrace that they are a person, allow them to be the person that they, you know, are without looking at them through this lens of they are a deficit or they are a detriment or they can't access anything until they fail first. So really the motivation behind it was writing the book was we need to change the system and we are not alone. If you believe statistics, at least one in five children are disabled. The, you know, the current statistics, at least nationally, have a, somewhere around 13 to 14% of children enrolled in special education, which means you're huge, missing huge swaths of children. At least six to 7% aren't even enrolled in special education. So what's happening in those households? What's happening with those families? What's happening to those children? And that says nothing for the children who are enrolled in special education, but whose needs still are not being met or their IEPs are not being followed. It, it is a broken, and that is probably a very polite term system. So, but usually nothing changes unless somebody knows about it until you, you, know, you have to build political capital and build momentum uh, and, and recruit allies because it's not just members of a group uh, within the group that can affect change. It usually requires having people outside that group helping support you and bring your issues forward. You're so right. I didn't even realize until recently how much I had to focus on the deficits and of my own children and that you don't realize how it's taking a toll on you. And no it, other parent has to do that. No, no. And the other thing that you were saying about bringing awareness, uh, my husband and I have said this, we don't even have time to, you know, go to support groups and do all these things or write a book, you know, which takes takes years to bring awareness, you know, right. like like it's it's taken you years to write it, and uh, it would it would take me years to write a book, you know, because of all the time that we spend doing the advocating, the day to day, the you know, being heavily involved in the child's education and and well being. No, and you don't. And families like ours typically don't, you're 100% right. Families like ours typically do not have the, um, I don't know the right term for it, like extra time, luxury time, the free time to be able to spend doing the things uh, that parents of able children do, like be on executive boards of uh, PTAs, where you would have power or some sort of influence over how your local school site gets to spend funds, you know, instead of, you know, picnics and parties, you know, your influence would be, well, what about extra psychological services or extra therapy services or trying to make that speech therapist instead of a part-time person, making it a full-time person. So your voice really becomes lost um, because of how much extra time you have to spend fighting and advocating. And then that becomes even more magnified when you, you kind of expand those circles outward 
you know, very few you know, parents like us find themselves in a position where you could be on a school board, really, right, and affect change at a district level where you're interfacing with school district superintendents or other administrative leaders to emphasize that these aren't just extra programs or fluff or some sort of benefit. These are mandatory required, you know, lawfully required uh, accommodations and access that have to be in place for disabled children. It's no different in my mind than a ramp for somebody in a wheelchair. Because these disabilities are not visible or not physical, it's very easy for systems to be dismissive of them. And that again is kind of another, you know, another wound to parents like us or like us. Right. Yeah. I have met one uh, other parent who managed to be on the school board and she had no problem getting services. Uh, in my state, it's very political. Um, people who are, who are connected usually don't have to fight and don't have much of a problem. The rest of us, we, we can shove it and we have to f fight for anything that's remotely appropriate. Well, I think there's a difference between uh, running on a platform of enacting change in special education and being uh, the parent uh, of a child who might be in special education who also is elected to the board, right? So it's, you know, what are your priorities when you're running? Is your priority really to address the system um, or is the priority to make sure that you take care of you and your own? <laughs> yeah, well, and, and in my state or probably in the state, but I know in my town that uh, I'm ineligible to run for the board anyway because I've brought litigation against the district. So already blackballed there and uh, I wouldn't be able to do it. Um, but it does not seem right. No, but I've seen other local board members uh, getting scholarships for their children, you know, works out great. Right, which is just, it's flatly wrong. Yeah, it, it is wrong because eventually there is going to be a large adult population when these children grow up and they didn't get the right help when they were young, they're not going to be as independent later in life. And ultimately it's so bad for society because the early education system is so broken that they couldn't get the right education early on. Well, there's a, there's a very clear established link of the kind of school to prison pipeline, right? Um, and when our prisons do a better job of screening for dyslexia than our schools do, you know there's a, a problem. And you can tease it apart into various, you know, different demographics. But there's at least a couple different studies to suggest that autistic autistic individuals have a life expectancy half as long as the typical American. And it's hard not to believe that a lot of that is not because they are not supported and accommodated and given access to an education. I mean, if you think about it, how it is for a neurotypical or, or able-bodied person, what education pretends for them in the future. So if you think about somebody who has uh, access to a high school diploma, and then somebody who has access to a bachelor's degree, or somebody who goes on and gets a master's or doctoral degree, just kind of the level of income that stair steps up with each one of those access points, at least in our home district or, or where uh, the district we've since moved 
uh, but the district where uh, my book and my story takes place, only at least 25% of children enrolled in special education actually graduate from high school. And I'm not sure uh, what New Jersey requirements are, but of those that do complete high school, really of only about a quarter of them meet the graduation requirements to get a diploma. The remainder just get this kind of a high school certificate. So in California, in order to meet the graduation requirements, you have to meet the requirements of our, our two university system. So if disabled children, only one out of every four of them really is getting a high school diploma, which would allow them access to you know, college or higher education. What does that mean for them down the road? What kind of job opportunities does that mean for them? You know, what kind of health outcomes does that mean for them? So the system being broken isn't just bad for them academically, you know, access to reading and writing, basic arithmetic and things like that. It, it has huge consequences down the road for them as adults. And we as parents inherently know that. And that's why we have to fight and advocate so hard. Right. Um, you know, in, in a sick way, I'm thankful that my oldest was so severe at the age of two that we didn't just let the, we couldn't just let things slide because because of disruptive behaviors and eloping and you know running out into the street, we knew that we had to get serious help. And uh, you know, we we started early, but uh, I've talked to a lot of a lot of other parents who, you know, it was subtle in the beginning, and they they did the wait and see approach that some pediatricians talk about. And wait and see, we're not sure yet; things might get better. And then before you know it. The child's eight years old and can't do any math. And that's why I love to talk to parents as early as possible. So you got to ask yourself who benefits from the wait and see model. <laughs> uh, really, I mean, where where is the harm in providing services to a child who might not have a disability? I mean, really, it's minimal. But the, the, the back half of that is what is the risk of not providing services to a child who is disabled, right? Huge problems down the road. You're doing them a huge disservice. You're not allowing them access to the things that lawfully they should have access to. And because of that, you're ultimately putting their lives in danger. And I don't think that's hyperbolic. It's, you know, it's, it's demonstrated in, in fact. I, I can't disagree with that. Anything you want to talk about from the IEP years? <laughs> they were never fun. Uh, I'm not sure where your listeners are in, in their, in their process, if they're early on or if they, you know, if they're, if they're seasoned veterans, we've always found it beneficial to record and to write as much as possible, to ask as many questions as possible. I know there's some variations from state to state, uh, but in California, there's no requirement uh, to sign an AP uh, immediately at, at the conclusion of a meeting. I know that's, it, it does differ in some other states. But really, use that as an opportunity to ask questions. IEP should be data-driven documents. So if changes are being suggested or they want to make changes to um, the level of withdrawal support or withdrawal services, that really needs to be based in fact. It can't be based in finances on their end or feelings or 
we really think that Bobby's going to do okay this year, so we're going to remove the aid. Well, that, that doesn't fly. You need to have actual data and proof. And that's on them to provide. So I would, those IEP years, um, no, not, not very fun. Uh, those meetings rarely are. I think by design, they are meant to be contentious. You are the minority in the room. And I think a lot of new parents feel as if the school knows better, uh, theoretically. Uh, you know, they have, they're bringing in the therapist, they're bringing the specialists, they have the school district administrator there, the teachers typically there. There's all of these people who are saying one thing, uh, and even if there's seeds of doubt in your mind, you don't feel as if uh, it's your place to argue or, or push back. So it's very easy to get um, pushed around, and that's not the parent's fault. It's 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 the system that's flawed. The system is failing. But those IEP meetings, if you you know personally, I it just became sessions of beating my head against the wall. And in fact. One of the chapters uh, in the book I actually wrote during an IEP meeting. I found it so frustrating. So <laughs> you can use them constructively, um, but remember, it's it, it should be about the child. It shouldn't be uh, about uh, it should not be about the school. It should be about your child. So if you keep them uh, center focused, I, I can say that you will always be successful. But um, it will keep uh, reminding the district who you're there for. Yeah, I've yeah I've found it's damned if I do, damned if I don't. When it comes to asking questions, I've been criticized for asking certain questions, and uh, other times I've been criticized for not saying anything. So, well, you didn't give any feedback, <laughs> so parents can't win, right? No, typically not. And like I said, it's not a it is not not a system that is uh, like I said it, it is inherently conflicted. If it really were about the child, it, it would not be so contentious. Uh, there would be uh, someone there who does not have a financial interest in in the system. They would be there to make sure that they had a very clear, accurate assessment of your child and knew on a fairly reasonably well level what services would serve them better so that they could access their education. But unfortunately, that's just not the way uh, the system is built. And so parents like us find themselves having to navigate this system where often you as the parent uh, are blamed for not only what's happening with your child, but the flaws in the system, right? You're not asking enough questions or you're asking too many questions, right? I'm sorry, Ms. Murphy, but you're the reason that we can't get through these meetings on time. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I could go on and on. It's a, you know, my, my story will come out in, in a different time. Well, aside from being a great parent, what other things did you do for your child's maybe outside of school that helped any therapies in the home or uh, activities? <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, you know, early intervention services happened before school ever was a, a thing for us or an issue for us. So that was, uh, I, you know, my recommendation is if, it, if, if at all you have questions or concerns, you know, seek uh, professional guidance. And you, you can always, you trust your gut. Um, pediatricians don't always know. Clearly school districts 
don't always know or have best interests in mind. Uh, there should be, through your local municipality, typically there is some sort of community-based referral system for early intervention services. Uh, in California, that's uh, pretty widespread. I think it, it obviously it varies from state to state. But truly, honestly, I think for us, emotionally, kind of foundationally, it's remembering to treat your child. They are a child. They are a person. It's not uh, someone who's deficient or defective. You know, a lot of times uh, these functional labels get ascribed to children, especially uh, spectrum uh, children. And it's, they are not descriptive, they are comparative. And that comparison serves no one's best interests. So really remembering to hold on to your child's humanity, I think is, and they, even if you have a, or you don't have a neurotypical uh, sibling, you know, it's this is still their childhood too. So, you know, finding joy in those moments that you can, I think is really important and letting them know you love them. Yeah, if we don't look after them, nobody else will. Yeah, um, well, certainly our system. Well, system. certainly not. Um, I can't wait to read the book. When does it come out? So the launch event is on January 26th, and it will be, uh, the link for that should be live now on my website, www.authoraaronwright.com. Uh, if you're on Instagram, uh, there should be a similar link to that as well. Uh, I can also be found on Facebook. I occasionally make an appearance on Twitter, although it's not necessarily my favorite forum. Uh, but it, Anything, uh, you're right, anything and everything book related uh, is best kind of navigated through the website. There's currently right now we have uh, pre-sales or pre-orders of the book uh, going on. Even after the launch event, uh, if you don't want to go through my site, um, any bookstore, any local bookstore that you uh, choose to haunt should be able to order the book for you if they don't carry it uh, on, on their shelves. Uh, especially if you tend to be Amazon averse. Um, but yeah, everything, anything and everything that you would want, you should be able to find on my website. There are a couple freebies. So if you're a little leery about you want to check out a book, you, you know, you're, you're the kind of person that likes to walk through the bookstore, maybe thumb through a few chapters before you decide to purchase. I do have a few of the early chapters online uh, for free. And I also have a, a sample audiobook uh, chapter online as well. Excellent. Great. Uh, so the, the Instagram handle is author Aaron Wright. Correct. And that, uh, that should uh, be consistent with uh, Facebook as well. Facebook. Okay. Yes. All of this will be in the show notes. Yeah. And then just, you know, just, you know, so you and your, your, your readers know this really is a, obviously this is a memoir and it is, it is a true story but I really wrote it so that it would read like a novel. And that was really designed to not only be able to kind of tell our story in a way that would uh, you know, elicit emotional reaction from those that are reading it and kind of engender empathy, but also so that it would be attractive to a wider audience besides the disability community to really kind of engage and bring in some of those allies to help uh, support what we're calling the hashtag right to belong movement, which is you know, bringing awareness to this really what is a civil rights issue. It is. 
Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. Can't wait to read it. And yeah. thank you for your time. Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate it very much.